Hey listeners, be sure to subscribe to Cavalry Plus on Apple Podcasts if you want access to new episodes a week early and ad-free. Cavalry Audio. In the architecture of community, Leon Creer, the legendary architect, wrote, A city is not an accident but the result of coherent visions and aims. An old proverb says, In the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. In Spanish, it's, En tierra de ciegos, el tuerto es rey. When I picture Guatemala City, a little bigger than Cleveland, but with almost eight times as many people, I can't help but think that it was built by one-eyed men in search of a crown, jostling for the throne. The overcrowding, choking traffic, abject poverty, housing inequality, pollution, residential segregation. It's like Guatemala City was designed to make its people as miserable as possible. To engender criminality and violence. To let small, petty, corrupt men reign as semi-feudal lords. So far in telling the story of the Rosenberg case, we've mostly spent time amongst the creme de la creme in Guatemala. Politicians, bankers, lawyers, and businessmen. We'll get back to those guys, rest assured. But the drama of the Rosenberg case didn't just take place in boardrooms, posh penthouses, and the August Halls of Power. Today, we're going to start off in the streets. Because to get the full picture of what happened, we've got to look at not only the men who give orders, but the ones who pull triggers. Uh From Cavalry Audio and executive producer Oscar Isaac. I'm Edgar Castillo, and this is The Rosenberg Case. You're listening to Episode 4, The One-Eyed King. In the late 70s and into the 80s, Los Angeles became a major destination for Central American immigrants mostly from El Salvador, fleeing from the terrors of civil war. The LAPD has case files relating to small cliques of Salvadoran kids dating back to the late 70s, roaming the streets of LA's Pico Union neighborhood, getting into fights, breaking into cars, listening to heavy metal music in gas station parking lots, that kind of thing. Here's Stephen Dudley a journalist with decades of experience covering Latin America. And these are brutal, brutal proxy wars um, that are ostensibly about keeping communism at bay because of leftist guerrilla insurgencies in the region, and they lead to devastating consequences. And that includes these thousands of migrants that are moving into these very dense spaces in places like Los Angeles. And what they find there when they arrive is that they are amongst a very competitive 
you know, environment uh, in which there are numerous other migrants from other places that are competing over, you know, what are in essence scraps. Binding together to protect themselves from Mexican and white gangs, these Salvadoran kids formed what would eventually be known as Mara Salvatrucha, or MS-13, one of the most violent and feared criminal gangs in the world. By the mid-80s, the gang had begun to engage in small-scale drug trafficking and extortion. As their numbers swelled, stints in American prisons and associations with other criminal gangs gave MS-13 more structure and discipline. Starting in 1992, Salvadorans living undocumented in America were deported back to their home country in waves, including scores of MS-13 gang members. The gang continued its criminal activities, now exporting murder, extortion, drug trafficking, kidnapping, and brutality across the Northern Triangle of Central America, Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras. In Central American Spanish, Mara is slang for a criminal street gang. The word stems from the term marabunta, which refers to a species of predatory army ant that forages in large, aggressive groups. It's not a bad image if you want to understand what MS-13 and its offshoots have done to Central America, including Guatemala. Guatemala City, especially, has been overrun by brutally violent gang members, to the point of completely taking over some neighborhoods. For example, there's a small neighborhood in Zone 3 of the capital called El Gallito. This neighborhood, and a few others like it, is called a red zone. A place so dangerous that even the police are hesitant to step foot inside. These gang members, or mareros, make their money mostly by extorting local business owners and residents. They approach stores, shops, kiosks, bus drivers, and residents, demanding anywhere from 40,000 to 100,000 quetzales. That's 500 to $13,000. How much depends on what kind of business it is or how much money the resident makes. People usually pay, knowing that if they don't, the mareros will kidnap, torture, and murder family members, even children, until they get their money. We're talking about pretty horrific stuff here. In addition to their violent tactics, these maras sometimes dabble in satanic rituals. Voodoo dolls, mutilation, human sacrifice, and even cannibalism. In 2017, a Houston teenager was brutally murdered by a group of MS-13 gang members as a sacrifice to their satanic saint. The violence is part of their cohesion. Um, and they have this sort of uh, collective expression of violence. And that plays out in very specific ways which is what makes us really think of this macabre way of, 
of 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 them dealing with their issues and that is that for example if they are going after a number of people who they perceive as rivals or they think have wronged them you know they will get in front of them and they will you know they will pass around the the machete for example um so that everybody participates um in the actual cutting up of a body or or killing somebody um or whatever the case may be you know so you get you get those sorts of almost ritualistic expressions of violence um and it's about showing or about illustrating that you are in right that you are part of the group and you know this is and this is the way in which you illustrate it what do you do about this kind of violence how can you stop it especially in a country like Guatemala where the very institutions that are meant to protect you are riddled with corruption and graft remember that in 2009 the year Rosenberg was murdered 98% of all violent crimes went unresolved and unprosecuted how does a normal person live in this kind of world i'm talking about students taxi drivers mothers merchants mechanics how did normal watermolens try to survive in a world plagued by such violence they fought back after years of suffering at the hands of these violent street gangs Guatemala saw a rise of vigilantism starting around the first half of the 2000s. Civilians set up security patrols to monitor and protect neighborhoods. These were local residents armed with guns, clubs, machetes, and two-way radios. Small groups of off-duty police officers would roam the streets at night in armored cars. on the hunt for mareros one such group was called los angeles de la noche or angels of the night but these informal patrols weren't trying to arrest the gang members they were out for blood and often the tactics they deployed were just as violent as those of ms13 an eye for an eye for example In November of 2008, three national civil police officers were sentenced to 30 years in prison for executing five gang members in El Gallito, that red zone neighborhood I just mentioned. The pervasive presence of street gangs has also contributed to the rise of a new black market service, Hitmen for Hire, or Sicarios. Bus and taxi companies, store owners, lawyers, residents with enough money, anyone who has been targeted by the Mareros can hire a sicario or a team of sicarios to take care of their problem. Contracts for low-level targets typically start around 4,000 to 5,000 quetzales, about 500 bucks. A more difficult job will run you something in the neighborhood of $5,000. Many of these paid hitmen are either current or former police officers or soldiers. They've got the training and the experience, so it's a natural transition in some ways. They even form groups that function like ad hoc corporations with 
presidents, treasurers, and secretaries. The creation of, of these kind of death squads in, inside the police is one that we see very prominently in, in Guatemala. And it is, it's pretty typical. I mean, the, these guys, they form these really tight bonds inside of the, of the police. And then once they are out of the police, they either they're kicked out of the police or they leave the police. Then one of their, you know, one of the easy options that they have or the options that they have available is to become connected to these criminal networks and offer their services. They have the experience and expertise to do so. And while these groups may have started off as paid assassins, they have long since expanded into robbery, extortion, kidnapping, and drug trafficking, mutating into exactly the type of gang they originally targeted. So when Carlos Castesana and his CSIG team discovered that a former police officer named William Santos Divas appeared to have been involved in the murder of Rodrigo Rosenberg, they weren't surprised. Castesana knew full well that the National Civil Police was basically a mafia outfit disguised as a police force. About a year earlier, Sisig had sent the PNC a lengthy list of police officers and senior leaders implicated in criminal activities. Castesana himself declared that law enforcement in Guatemala was virtually non-existent and that Sisig was carrying out, quote, an autopsy of collapsed institutions. He wasn't wrong. Decades of repressive authoritarian rule and civil war had atrophied the country's police and criminal justice system. For example, when CSIG began its mission in 2007, Guatemalan law did not allow modern investigative tools and techniques such as wiretapping, controlled drug deliveries, or plea bargaining with suspected criminals in exchange for cooperation. One of Castesana's early wins was successfully reforming the country's code of criminal procedure to give CSIG and the judicial system the legal authority to utilize these modern investigative and forensic techniques. We're talking about wiretapping, GPS car tracking, phone call triangulation, analyzing surveillance camera footage, plea bargaining, precisely the techniques that would eventually break the Rosenberg case wide open. Once the CSIG team identified the black Mazda 6 spotted at the scene of Rosenberg's murder as belonging to William Santos Divas, the first thing they did was tap his phone. Over the next few weeks, CSIG would intercept and listen to over 10,000 calls between Santos Divas and his associates. It would mark the first time in Guatemalan history that a wiretapping operation had been legally conducted in the interest of apprehending criminals, instead of as a part of a secret intelligence program run by an authoritarian regime. By monitoring Santos Divas's conversations and movements, CSIG would soon be able to identify 10 members of the suspect's gang of contract killers. Most of them were current or former members of the Guatemalan police. They spoke in a coded language all their own, 
a code that CSIG agents were able to decipher after listening to thousands of calls. For example, they deduced that un palo grande, or a big stick, referred to a high-profile target. The gang was careful and disciplined. They almost never spoke about their clients, which was exactly the information that the CSIG agents were looking for. Castesana was walking a fine line. He needed to keep the wire going until the sicarios tripped up and gave information regarding the client who hired them for the Rosenberg murder. At the same time, the gang was still active and taking on new jobs. On multiple instances, Sisig had to foil the gang from carrying out crimes while not jeopardizing the surveillance operation. On top of everything, Castesana couldn't afford to wait too long to move, given that the Guatemalan government was coming apart at the seams. On May 15th, Colom gave an interview to Al Jazeera, wherein he gave a stern, if desperate, warning to the crowd of increasingly furious protesters. Quote, they should be careful of crossing the line. Accusing a president publicly of murder is sedition if they cannot prove it. How many times did President Colom look out from the windows of the presidential palace onto the mass of protesters? How many times did he wonder with consternation whether the white tsunami would soon overtake his presidency, bringing down everything he had worked for? It's impossible to say for sure, but I bet it was more than once. Colom was losing control, and everyone could see it. Roberto Isurieta, the master political strategist flown in from Washington, D.C., had already lost several pounds as he worked around the clock to manage the crisis on several fronts. First off, he needed to manage the president himself to calibrate the correct responses to the scandal as it unfolded. At the same time, he was working to rally support from the president's allies, both in Guatemala and in the United States. The anti-Colón protests, which at first had seemed to develop spontaneously, had now been co-opted by the president's political enemies, including Otto Pérez Molina, the right-wing ex-general viewed as Colón's biggest rival. Manodura, as he was known, began appearing amidst the protesters, dressed in white, and calling for the president's immediate resignation. But the trickiest part for Isurieta proved to be navigating the different factions that had begun to form within Colón's inner circle, starting with Gustavo Alejos, the chief of staff whom Rosenberg had named as a co-conspirator in the plot to kill Galil Musa. There's a saying in Guatemalan politics, all roads lead to Gustavo Alejos. Back in 2009, as chief of staff to Colón, the wealthy pharmaceutical executive held the keys to the kingdom. And the rumors were that he was using his position to corruptly steer government contracts to his own companies. Years later, 
Sisig would eventually open eight cases of corruption on Alejos. It's pretty clear that Alejos was as crooked as they come. But was he a murderer? Did he kill the Musas and Rosenberg? If Alejos wasn't guilty, he was sure acting like a man with blood on his hands. Almost immediately after viewing the video, he called his wife and told her to put a private jet on standby in case they needed to flee to their home in Miami. He had already offered Colom his resignation, an offer which had been swiftly rejected. Whatever his motivations, Alejo seemed to be distancing himself from the administration. Was he just a rat fleeing a sinking ship? Or was he a puppet master pulling strings from the shadows? Vice President Rafael Espada didn't seem like the type to orchestrate a coup. He was a genial ex-surgeon with a high moral standing and a folksy appeal. Despite his prominent position and popularity, Espada was still an outsider in Guatemalan politics and in the Colom administration. This was the same man whom Rosenberg had urged to assume control of the government in his video. In the days after the murder, Espada made pains to publicly voice his unwavering support for the president. Still, there was no question he would benefit from Colom's ouster. And if the military were to throw their weight behind him, that would be end game. It would only be a matter of time before the generals forced Colom to resign. But the true wild card in Colom's inner circle was his wife, the woman everyone called the bulldozer, the first lady, Sandra Colom. Those who don't understand poverty will never, never understand why we need Mi Familia Progresa, and we are not asking them to. The little bit of money that you are receiving today is the difference between eating and going hungry for a full month, ladies and gentlemen. That was Sandra Colom talking about Mi Familia Progresa, the flagship social welfare program she established during her husband's term in office. You can hear her following the same playbook that got her husband elected, a populist appeal to the impoverished masses of Guatemala. You can also hear the outline of a stump speech, the kind you deliver when you're running for president. Sandra Colom was widely viewed, not just as the engine behind her husband's rise to power, but as his natural successor to the presidency. While the meek Colom seemed to lack the intestinal fortitude to make a lasting mark, the first lady was cut from the same piece of iron as Margaret Thatcher. You don't get a nickname like the bulldozer because you're soft-spoken and have really good manners. Even American State Department officials recognized her as the power behind the power. She was tough, smart, passionate, polarizing, ambitious, and ruthless. After her husband's victory, Sandra wasted no time in laying the groundwork for a future presidential run. On January 21, 2008, the Colom administration introduced the Council of Social Cohesion, a new government agency 
intended to coordinate the president's social welfare programs. The council was composed of representatives from various ministries and was going to be led by the First Lady. And a large chunk of the funding for these anti-poverty programs was going to come from Bandural, the quasi-public bank that President Colom called the financial arm of his administration. Mi Familia Progresa follows in the steps of programs like Oportunidades in Mexico or Bolsa Familia in Brazil, whose formula of giving families financial incentives have been effective in fighting poverty. In English, Mi Familia Progresa means my family progresses. It was a conditional cash transfer program that provided direct payments to indigenous families in exchange for children's school attendance and vaccinations. Soon after its creation, the First Lady began traveling around the rural provinces of the country, promoting Mi Familia Progresa with well-publicized events that doubled as photo ops. After a rapturous reception at one such event, reporters asked whether she was considering a run for president. Sandra flashed a knowing smile and responded that she was still evaluating her options. But that coy grin fooled no one. Sandra Colom was dead set on becoming the first female president of Guatemala. Nothing was going to stop her. This feels like a good moment to dive a little deeper into the accusations made against the Coloms by their political enemies. Accusations Rosenberg also hinted at in his video. As I explain this, go ahead and pretend like Can't You Hear Me Knocking by the Rolling Stones is playing in the background. According to Rosenberg and other observers, Mexican drug cartels had been depositing hundreds of millions into Bandural, the bank which is partly controlled by the government. The bank would then funnel a portion of that dirty drug money into the First Lady's anti-poverty programs, converting it into cash transfers, lunch programs, infrastructure projects, etc. The Coloms would get a slice off the top, which they would use to bribe local officials and buy up votes in every little indigenous village they could find. There had always been rumors that President Colom had risen to power with a similar strategy, using cartel money to fund the creation of his own political party. Now, Sandra Colom was allegedly using the same playbook to launch herself onto the public stage and build up the infrastructure for a presidential campaign. It was perfect. Everybody benefited. The cartels got a state-run bank into which they could park their money and wash it clean. Sandra Colom got herself a network of cronies to help her get to the top. And at each step in the process, everybody else got themselves a piece of the pie. From the fat cats at the bank down to the local mayors of those tiny Mayan villages. Like I said, perfect in an outrageously corrupt kind of way. Rosenberg alleged that Khalil's Musa nomination to Bandural's board of directors would have put the scheme in jeopardy, and so that's why the Coloms ordered his assassination. The question is, 
Was any of this true? Well, maybe. According to a report put out by CSIG in 2015, it looks like Rosenberg wasn't that far off. It turns out that the Colombs, along with Gustavo Alejos, the president's chief of staff, had indeed got up to some pretty shady campaign financing practices in the run-up to the 2007 presidential election. Remember, Colom knew that Guatemala City was dominated by the elite interests who would never back a liberal. So in order to win the presidency, he needed to win the countryside. And that would require a ton of money. Specifically, Colom's National Unity of Hope Party had to pay off local community and party leaders to both rally voters and get them to the polls. According to CICIG, the Colombs tapped into three major revenue sources. The first was led by Gustavo Alejos, who used his connections to the upper tier of Guatemalan business to get financing from his friends in big pharma companies and construction outfits. The second stream was organized by Sandra Colom's sister, Gloria Torres. This is where it gets pretty sketchy. According to CICIG's investigation, Gloria solicited funds from two Guatemalan drug traffickers associated with the Sinaloa cartel. Quote, in the midst of the corrupt network created by Gloria Torres, what is clear is the connection of a drug trafficking organization to the highest levels of a political party, probably facilitated by the political contributions. CICIG's report. A guy named Obdulio Solorsano functioned as the Colom's third revenue collector. Solorsano was actually a high-ranking party official and member of Congress. But he also had deep ties to the Setas cartel, which had been trying to establish a foothold in the northern jungles of Guatemala. The quid pro quo was pretty simple. Colom's political party would steer government contracts towards shell companies owned by the cartels, and at the same time, steer police, military, the DEA, and prosecutors away from their trafficking operations. In exchange, Colom got millions of dollars in drug money to buy up as many votes as he needed to win the presidency. There's even some reason to believe that representatives from the Setas cartel actually met with one of the president's advisors in the presidential palace within just months of Colom taking power. So, yeah, a lot of evidence indicates that Álvaro Colom, the great liberal hope of Guatemala, did some highly questionable things to get elected. But does that mean that President Colom, the First Lady, or Gustavo Alejos actually ordered an assassination to cover up their crimes? Put a pin in that question. We'll come back to it later, I promise. This is kind of an abrupt transition, but you know what this story needs right now? A surprise witness. Oh, what do you know? That's exactly what we're about to get. 
just three weeks into the investigation, Carlos Castesana got a call from President Colom's Minister of the Interior. The minister, a close ally of Sandra Colom, dropped a bombshell. A witness had come forward with a first-hand account of who killed Rodrigo Rosenberg and of the conspiracy behind it. Plus, he had actual evidence. The minister related that the witness was being held in protective custody in a small town near the Mexican border called San Luis. The first lady offered Castesana the use of her helicopter to transport a team of CSIG agents to question the witness. Castesana was intrigued by the development, but a little skeptical. Direct evidence implicating a suspect provided by a member of President Colom's cabinet? It seemed too good to be true. But even the remotest possibility the witness had actionable evidence meant Castesana couldn't pass up the opportunity to question him. He accepted the First Lady's offer of the helicopter, but asked the minister to ensure that no media outlets would be present so as to protect the identities of his agents. The minister agreed. Still wary, Castesana sent his team. The helicopter arrived at San Luis and landed at a soccer field where the witness was waiting. This witness, a middle-aged, blue-collar guy with the incredible name of Ovidio Batz Dax, proceeded to tell the CSIG agents his story. Batz Dax claimed that the mastermind behind the Rosenberg assassination, the man who had brought Guatemala to the brink of political catastrophe, was none other than Otto Perez Molina, the uber-conservative leader of the opposition, the man they called Mano Dura. If I advance, follow me. If I stop, urge me on. If I retreat, kill me. That's the motto of the Caibiles, the Special Operations and Counterinsurgency Wing of the Guatemalan Army. Due to their brutal training methods, barbaric tactics, and bizarre initiation rituals, the Caibiles are among the most fearsome special ops units in the world. They are also infamous for having participated in the worst atrocities of the Guatemalan Civil War, especially during the late 70s and early 80s, when the army implemented a scorched earth program meant to cleanse the countryside of communist guerrillas. In reality, they mostly just slaughtered peasants and burned down villages. The Caibiles were directly responsible for probably the worst massacre in Guatemalan history at a small village called Dos Erres in 1982. I'm not going to mention the truly horrible things they did at Dos Eres here. You can look it up on your own if you want. Otto Perez Molina was a Caibil. In 1982, he formed part of a special airborne unit that swept the Guatemalan countryside as part of the counterinsurgency campaign I just mentioned. Despite clear evidence that he participated in human rights abuses and massacres, Perez Molina's career continued its upward trajectory, with him eventually being named Guatemala's Director of Military Intelligence in 1992. 
As the Civil War came to a close, Perez Molina actually positioned himself as a moderate reformer, representing the military in the negotiations with the guerrillas that eventually ended the fighting. The irony of a war criminal helping to broker peace accords notwithstanding. Perez Molina was always more interested in power than peace. Over the 80s and 90s, the ex-general gradually put together an extensive network of loyal followers and allies at all levels of the Guatemalan military. After the war ended, this network eventually became a clandestine security organization called El Sindicato, or the Syndicate, with Perez Molina at the top. Perez Molina's prominent role in negotiating peace, along with the considerable amount of soft power he had accrued as the head of a parallel power structure, positioned him as the frontrunner for president in 2007. In a shocker, he lost against Colom, but that didn't deter him. If anything, it only stoked his ambitions to win the presidency and become the most powerful man in the country. So, when Ovidio Batstax claimed to have evidence that Perez Molina was directly implicated in the Rosenberg murder, Castesana knew exactly what that meant. It was the strongest indicator yet that there was a right-wing conspiracy behind the assassination, with Perez Molina at the head of the snake. And if that were the case, it wouldn't be the first time Mano Dura was involved in a political assassination. He was rumored to have participated in the 1998 murder of a Roman Catholic bishop named Juan Jose Gerardi, who was in charge of producing a report on human rights abuses committed by the Guatemalan military during the Civil War. The short of it was that Perez Molina was a very powerful, very dangerous man. And having gone after powerful, dangerous men before, Castresana knew that whatever evidence this witness had against the ex-general had to be airtight, rock solid. If you come for the king, you best not miss. Batstax told investigators that Perez Molina had hired a gang of sicarios called Pythagoras to murder Rosenberg. And now that the ex-general had failed to pay the second installment of the fee, the gang had targeted him. Batstax even had text messages showing that Perez Molina's cronies had offered him a bribe in exchange for his silence. Castesana was stunned by the development. He later said, quote, with this testimony, we could have arrested the leader of the political opposition and put him in jail. But the first indication that this witness was too good to be true came when, during the interview at the soccer field, a horde of reporters suddenly appeared, taking pictures and shouting questions. Without informing Sisig, the First Lady's team had turned the interview into a photo op. Castesana had been played. Several media outlets, especially those friendly with the Colom administration, ran with the story, declaring that proof of a conspiracy had been found. But, after sustained interrogation back in Guatemala City, 
Bats Dax's story began to break down. His evidence was all fake. Even his amazing name was fake. It turned out that the Minister of the Interior had paid off both the witness and the reporters who ambushed the interview. The witness confessed it all and implicated the First Lady in the plot. The Colombs denied the allegations, of course, but an enraged Castresana didn't buy it. He sent a formal complaint to President Colomb's office and to his bosses at the UN, asking for permission to investigate Sandra Colomb for obstruction of justice. And with that, the ballad of Ovidio Batstax was over. He won't figure into the story again, but I may find a way to say his name one more time. The sordid affair of the false witness had rattled Castesana. He was convinced that the Colombs, despite the president's pledge to not interfere, were doing everything they could to meddle with his case. He was starting to get paranoid. He was worried about leaks to the press. He became convinced that there was at least one mole inside of Sisig. He started sweeping his office for bugs every morning and night. Whenever discussing sensitive matters with his agents, he would turn on a white noise machine. Maybe he felt a little like a one-eyed king, the vulnerable, half-blind ruler of a ramshackle empire. Castresana still didn't have the answers he needed, but he was determined to press on, convinced that they would eventually find the key that would unlock the Rosenberg mystery. And then, on May 27th, the Sisig team uncovered a bombshell, a discovery that would make Castresana question everything he thought he knew about this convoluted case. After finally obtaining Rosenberg's phone records, a cursory analysis revealed that the slain lawyer had exchanged hundreds of text messages and calls with one person, Marjorie Hildebrandt, the daughter of Khalil Musa, who was murdered at her father's side. Even more telling was the substance of these messages. The CCG agents discovered that Rodrigo Rosenberg had been keeping a secret. He was having an affair with his client's daughter, a married woman, which meant that in trying to solve the Musa killings, Rosenberg had actually been investigating the murder of the woman he loved. And the reason he was so obsessed with finding the truth wasn't because he wanted justice, but revenge. That's next time on The Rosenberg Case. If you don't want to wait to find out what happens next on The Rosenberg Case, be sure to subscribe to Cavalry Plus only on the Apple Podcast app to get next week's episode right now ad-free. Trust me, you won't want to miss it.